0: Welcome to the eighth episode in ICOCA's podcast series, Future Security Trends, Implications for Human Rights. I'm Chris Galvin, and I'll be in conversation today with Jonathan Drimmer, a partner at Paul Hastings Law Firm in Washington, D.C., and strategic advisor with the Voluntary Principles on Security and Human Rights, to discuss the future of compliance, why clients count. Jonathan, you're a lawyer with extensive compliance and litigation experience, which includes working for a large multinational extractive company. So can you tell us why companies should care about human rights compliance and what risks they face if they ignore human rights risks?
1: Sure, of course, Chris. And thank you for having me and enjoy the podcast and a pleasure to be on it. So the the risks to companies are are myriad, and I, I really like to separate them into two different categories. First and most important are the risks to stakeholders, the risks to potential victims, individuals, communities. And human rights risks manifest in a way that can be life-altering. It can cause permanent physical injury. It can change the topography of a a landscape. It can uh, alter the perception between a, a company uh, and a community, not just for this generation, but for subsequent generations. And human rights violations can perpetuate cycles of violence uh, and contribute to conflict and conflict affected areas, uh, both in the immediate locale where the incident occurs and, and through the larger region. So the risk to stakeholders is first and foremost and primary and really quite substantial. And that's to some extent, and that's really where. Uh, the human rights lens tends to focus on the risk, risk to victims. But the risk to companies is also uh, tremendous as well. And, it, and, and you can look to a number of different areas where it, it comes about in the most prominent ways. First, you certainly can lose your license to operate. The loss of local support creating a situation where there's tension and divisiveness between the company and it's uh, and local communities, its workers, uh, family members of workers, and other who, others who are in the immediate vicinity of your operation. You can lose home country support uh, from government, local government, as well as a national government. And that can be hugely impactful when you go to renew a license or seek an extension of a license or try to get a subsequent permit. So it can really cause you huge operational harm. And, fr- and frankly, when we talk about Um, loss of support and operational harm. Licensed to operate also can lead to protests and shutdowns, I should mention. Internally, it's a a killer when it comes to recruiting new employees. uh, Young young workers, top workers, top top folks coming out of school, do not want to work for human rights violators. It creates lousy morale among your existing workforce. It creates tension between your senior management and boards. Uh, And so internally, it's really uh, uh, incredibly difficult and and challenging as well. And then finally, you know, it can lead to all kinds of legal problems. It can lead to costly civil lawsuits. It can lead to criminal investigations against employees and and companies. It can lead to uh, shareholder proxy fights uh, and other challenges uh, with uh, shareholders and investors. And so the legal component that's associated with human rights violations is also uh, should be a tremendous deterrent to companies in terms of um, engaging in anything that, that might lead to this. So, so the way to address this, and, and as we segue from the harms into into ways that you you look to address it, you know, management systems are the lifeblood of uh, companies. Managing risks, managing issues, managing opportunities. It all comes into management systems or compliance programs, if you're approaching this uh, from the legal end. So addressing human rights in a coherent, cohesive and systematic way through a management system, through a compliance program with policies and procedures, uh, organized with the governance system, with training, with audits, with investigations, with reporting, all of these being handled in a systematic and organized way uh, is the best method of avoiding uh, human rights problems and the risks to stakeholders and the risks to companies
0: uh, that that I just identified. Now, I mean, some of these companies are huge, obviously multinationals with staff all over the world, um, big management structures. So what are the challenges in in a company like that from both, you know, the management perspective, but also with employers based all over the world in the field?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you're looking... Globally, it's really quite hard to have a single management system with very specific rules that govern all of your operations. To some extent, you do need to have an umbrella program and you are going to need to have certain baseline requirements that apply everywhere, such as the use of force and, and, and other standards uh, that are uh, universal uh, in, in nature. But, but as you point out, the risks are different from place to place, not only from country to country, but even within a country from community to community. So one one giant, very prescriptive system tends not to to work globally. Uh, Local geographies, local governments, local cultures, past histories and incidents, local perceptions, all of these things end up uh, coming into play. Um, and so o- ultimately as a, as a company, it's critical to define a global program with certain foundational elements like a use of force policy, like human rights uh, training. But ultimately how it gets applied and interpreted is something that is going to require a high degree of local expertise um, and uh, local nuance. Risks all come from on the ground implementation and understanding your operating environment in a thorough uh, and complete way and applying your global system in a manner that truly works uh, on, a, on a local level, that is ultimately, that's the name of the game, uh, really. Taking the global system, translating it and applying it in a way that is effective given the local operating uh, situation.
0: Now, you know, having your own internal policies, management systems, processes in place is one thing, but how should a company do its due diligence on its suppliers to ensure that they're also human right compliance? And again, we're talking about suppliers that are going to be based all over the world, whose operations don't fall under the purview of their clients' management and oversight functions.
1: Yeah, dealing with suppliers is maybe the most difficult aspect of of any human rights management system or or, or compliance program, depending on on what you may call it as as a company. You know, due diligence is hard. Monitoring is hard. You don't control suppliers. You've got a lot of suppliers to deal with. And, you know, companies, you you know, can have tens and sometimes hundreds of thousands of 1st tier suppliers. Who could create human rights different and, and really serious human rights risks and, and challenges. So most good approaches uh, break this down into two different tiers. There's a baseline approach and then an enhanced approach. And you start with some kind of a baseline process that applies to maybe not all of your suppliers, but most of your suppliers and certainly all suppliers who on paper could theoretically create some kind of risk. And it really starts with some kind of information gathering, questionnaires that go to the suppliers about their work history, expertise, problems that have arisen, um, their policies and procedures, etc. So uh, information that, that is filled out by um, suppliers in an in a information gathering, self-certification kind of way. That's also supported at the same time by a light level of diligence. Internet searches or maybe a subscription database search to identify if, uh, if there is a, a public report of a past history involving a negative human rights impact or, or, or something that could create a risk of a negative human rights impact. Um, but that's also then something that you would couple with uh, the nature of the service and activity that's being provided to see whether it in and of itself creates a high risk. So for instance, if you're sourcing, uh, sourcing a specific good from an area, where the risk of a human rights violation is high, let's say you're buying bricks from Afghanistan, which has uh, numerous public reports of of forced labor associated with brick making uh, in Afghanistan, you'll ultimately want to um, elevate that up to a higher risk. But this this light diligence effort is gonna look at history as well as the nature of the service or the product that you're buying. And I should point out um, that there are plenty of lists like the US Department of Labor or the Department of State that does uh, help connect high-risk goods, high-risk activities, high-risk areas. uh, Walk Free, an NGO has that information that's publicly available as well. And so that diligence is looking to try to identify uh, whether there is some kind of known and public risk associated uh, with the activity. Uh, When that activity concludes, assuming there isn't a higher risk that's identified, Light controls are, are typically put into place, contract terms to respect human rights, and kind of oversight and monitoring, but it, it is much lighter than in, in the second category, which involves uh, enhanced risks. And those could come from either the very nature of the service that's being provided, or if the light due diligence, the baseline diligence, ultimately identifies uh, increased risks, and these involve risks of, of negative uh, human rights impacts in the second category that would warrant enhanced diligence, and, and that involves a more in-depth approach. So you might have interviews of your supplier, you might order uh, a, a screening report where you're getting a, a due diligence provider to ultimately give you information potential public risks associated with the supplier. You might check references, you might do a litigation check, you might do a criminal record check, you might ask the supplier uh, more about their policies and procedures as well as how they're implemented. Um, and at the end of that process, if you decide that the risk is, isn't too high to proceed, you're going to put into place um, elevated or enhanced controls. So that could ensure uh, training. You might, you might not only insist on training, but also look at the nature of the training to make sure you're comfortable with the substance of what's being provided. closer oversight, closer monitoring, you might ask for certificates of compliance. You might conduct assessments or inspections or ask someone else to, to do it. But, but it's hard, you know, managing suppliers on a global basis is really hard. And whether you're dealing with baseline diligence or enhanced diligence, it, it requires a lot of time, attention, uh, and an operational devotion, and uh, when you have a lot of suppliers around the world, you know you just multiply, that exponentially.
0: Now, I, I want to focus on one particular service, which is private security, and you know I'd really like to uh, to kind of ask why is security so central to this, especially when we're talking about human rights risks?
1: Yeah, and no, appreciate your raising it, and I and I do think it's central, and it's central both operationally in terms of protecting. Uh, people and property and assets and local communities, but but also in terms of the human rights side. But to, to stick with the first piece of it, you know, the role of security is, is really fundamental. Um, employees want to be protected and feel protected. Management wants their property, their assets, ultimately uh, to be protected from theft, from vandalism, from riots, from destruction. And local communities, they want to feel safe as well. Physical safety is one of the fundamental things that we all can expect as a human right. And and so the the role of security is just fundamental and pivotal um, for all of the relevant stakeholders and and their own safety, well-being, and and, and that of of their property. But the risks that are associated with uh, with security are 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 really quite substantial, and and it's more substantial in some places than others, and in some sectors uh, than others. But when you have uh, individuals who are uh, looking to protect assets, protect individuals from physical harm, often armed with um, hard munitions or even uh, non lethals, um, you know, confrontation is part of part of what happens in, in, in the provision of this, of this uh, critical function. And so the risk of human rights violations is really quite high. And we can separate out private security from public security. And a lot of uh, human rights issues are typically associated with, with public security, which, which we can certainly talk about. But on the private side, which is often meant to supplement what uh, public security uh, can provide, you, you also have risks as well. And then those risks may depend again on the nature of whether the private security is armed and, and, those, and the geography and, and the inherent risks uh, that, that ultimately exist. Um, but I, I do think we are gonna see private security increasing. I think we are going to be digging out from the pandemic for many years, and public security is going to continue to be uh, strained. And so the role of private security in helping um, ensure this fundamental right that that we all can expect, life, liberty, and the protection of our property, you know, is going to fall increasingly on private security. And and again, with it, you know, varying levels of, of human rights risk. So... I think it's really important. It's incredibly important in any human rights program to have a serious process along the lines that I was talking about, diligence, controls to help identify, prevent, and mitigate those risks. And that's really what um, I know ICOCA is deeply focused on, but it's also what companies ought to be focused on themselves.
0: And given, you know, that the risk is really quite substantial with this sector, are there any particular initiatives? You've mentioned ICOCA being one. I know you're an advisor to the Voluntary Principles Initiative. If you could tell us a little bit about how that works and how it's fared in this regard, uh, that would be great. And also, you know, is there opportunity here for for these initiatives that really operate in parallel to, to perhaps work more closely together? Yeah, we've been
1: talking for years about the VPS and ICOCA uh, w- working more closely together, and 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 I think they have been working more closely together and undertaking really good joint initiatives around things like gender-based violence and, and other critical areas that you know exist in the in the security space. Um, but yeah, let's talk about the voluntary principles in security and human rights for a minute. I mean, it really is it is the leading security and human rights initiative, and the world. The, the principles themselves have been in existence, you know, for more than two decades, they are embedded not only throughout the extractive sector, which is how they were originally created, but by uh, companies in, in, in a multiplicity of sectors and increasingly are incorporated uh, into um, so other soft law standards that, that may have a sector uh, specific focus. So when, when you think about security and human rights and structures that exist, Uh, to help uh, mitigate relevant risks, uh, the VPs is the thing uh, that ultimately uh, comes to mind. Uh, There are three parts to the voluntary principles. It's separated into three areas. There's risk assessments, there's public security, uh, there's private security uh, risk assessments, which is kind of akin to what we talk about in terms of due diligence under the UN guiding principles, on uh, business and human rights uh, has six different areas that you focus on and it's everything from um, history of violence to weapons transfers to to other areas public and private security have have a large overlap but they they do focus on vetting they focus on uh, contract terms they do focus on weapons transfers they focus on investigations and issues uh, when they arise so they're they're fairly thorough and fairly detailed but part of their genius is they leave a lot of room for individual practice within, within those uh, fairly specific areas. Um, and companies really can take these, much in the way we talked about before, in terms of having a global standard but applying it locally. The VPs is a really good example of identifying the relevant practices, but it doesn't, it isn't so prescriptive as to say how they should, how each one should should ultimately be carried out. So it really is uh, a, a very, very helpful framework. Um, in terms of security and, and human rights, and and then the voluntary principles initiative, is composed of you know give or take uh, fifty different NGOs, companies, uh, leading governments, <clears throat> external observers like the World Bank and the Red Cross, uh, and others, and they get together to talk about best practices and engage on how um, VPs can, can be most successfully implemented. And it's within that framework that ICOCA, which is an observer uh, to the VPs, has, has had such a, a helpful role, not only in its, in its core function, um, setting the standards for private security, defining good practice, giving confidence, uh, that performance uh, is is ultimately appropriate. But in working with the VPs and VPs members to try to identify more in-depth practices on specific areas like vulnerable populations where where problems really come up. So I, I do think um, the relationship with ICOCA and, and the VPs is is growing and getting better. I think there's a lot of mutual respect that goes back and forth, both sort of incredibly important. Uh, roles uh, in 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 this in this area of, of human rights and and security, and and I do think that is going to continue and increase for for some time.
0: Now this series is titled Future Security Trends, and so I want to end uh, with just a small question, uh, and that's really looking at trends in human rights litigation. If if you could just summarize quickly what you think the trends have been over the last decade and where you see. The trends going in the coming decade
1: yeah sure so human rights uh, legislation and litigation both are snowballing the entire legal framework around human rights is is gaining momentum with every year and if you look back over time you'll see you know fairly light acti- activity until about 2015 and then from 2015 on we've seen a tremendous amount on the legislation side litigation We've had 20 plus years of active human rights litigation, and, and that continues to expand as well. So, what are what are the trends that we're ultimately seeing? And I and I would say, as an as an overlay, uh, there's no way it's going to slow down. If anything, it's going to increase um, tremendously. So, one of the things we're really seeing right now is a focus on parent liability, and this is particularly the case uh, throughout the EU, but also in Canada as well. I would say the U.S., but I think those. The cases have have, have really established the rules around uh, parent liability in the U.S. under the Alien Tort Statute.
0: Of- what what could you just just explain no. parent liability? For- yeah, of for the- course.
1: Yeah, sure, sorry. Sure. So, parent liability basically is focused on companies uh, where a, a human rights issue or incident occurs on the ground involving a local subsidiary or affiliate. Um, the parent itself is uh, l- looked at as being responsible. And so, for instance, there's a major case going on right now in, uh, in, in the UK. It involves acts on the ground uh, in Zambia by the affiliate of a, of a major global mining company. The lawsuit is being brought against the parent company uh, in, in London. And so there's a real focus on making parent companies, the head office liable for the activities of its subsidiary, their subsidiaries and their affiliates all around the world. So that's a major focus right now. It's been a focus in, um, in, in Canada, it's been a focus in the UK, it's a big focus in Europe right now. We're seeing a big focus right now on, in particularly in the US, on potential liability for directors of companies, boards of directors for failing to adequately oversee material compliance-related risks of their enterprises. Um, This is something that's been ticking up fairly slowly, but if you couple that with some of the requirements in Modern Slavery acts, which we see in the UK and Australia and proposed elsewhere, um, they are requiring directors ultimately to approve or, or sign those Modern Slavery Act statements. So we're seeing this increasing responsibility and potential liability. Of directors that go around uh, the world in in different jurisdictions. We're seeing a lot of legislation that is contemplating specific kinds of civil cases uh, for human rights issues. Uh, For instance, in the United States there's the Trafficking Victim Protection Reauthorization Act, TVPRA, that focuses on issues related to trafficking and forced labor and allows for civil litigation as well as criminal litigation Uh, in cases where companies are knowingly benefiting from from a venture that involves uh, forced labor. We've seen in the last few years more cases being brought not only in home jurisdictions involving parent liability, but also in host jurisdictions where the incident uh, actually occurs, including with some very big judgments. Right now, the two biggest ticket items that are being kicked around are a draft UN business and human rights treaty that has a lot of liability and a lot of potential civil exposure that's associated with it. We're probably several years from that being ratified. More immediately, uh, in the EU, there's a human rights due diligence initiative that, that that is being debated and is going to be introduced at some point next year. That also contemplates uh, potential exposure associated with human rights uh, uh, diligence and failing to adequately um, undertake Steps in, in connection with the diligence. So it would cover both negative impacts as well as um, a procedural component. So we're seeing a lot from a lot of different angles uh, in, in the human rights, legal, legislation, and litigation space. Um, it's an area that each year, you know, it's just doubling, tripling in terms of the amount that we're seeing. And I think we can predict that in the next five, 10 years, it's, it's just going to be you know, far more expansive even than it is now, which is far more expansive than it was five years ago.
0: Well, Jonathan, it sounds like companies should be uh, taking their due diligence and compliance uh, all the more seriously okay. as the years go on. No but question. Thank you so much for your time today and uh, keep up the good work.
1: No, thanks, Chris. And uh, thanks to everybody at, at, at ICOCA for having me and uh, stay safe.
0: Thank you.